Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored for your business needs. Specializing in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. To elevate your business, visit ajproducts.ie. It's Friday, February the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Pat Leahy and Harry McGee are in studio to discuss the week in politics. Hi, guys. Hi, Hugh. Hello, Hugh. Um, Later on the show, we're going to be remembering our colleague, a former valued contributor to this podcast, Michael O'Regan, who died last week. But first, this is one of those occasions that we need to say as podcasters that events may have moved on from the time you listen to this podcast, from the time when we recorded it, which is about lunchtime on Friday. We are recording now and the Board of RTE, Pat, is due to hold an emergency meeting following the shock resignation of its chair, Shuni Rahalik. She resigned following an interview with Media Minister Catherine Martin on primetime last night in which Martin told the interviewer she had been misinformed about the board's knowledge of the departure of its former chief financial officer uh, and she also declined at the time to express confidence in O'Rahilly who resigned a couple of hours later. Did she effectively dismiss the chair on live television? I mean, it's hard to come to any other conclusion, really. I mean, if a minister goes on primetime in an interview that, interview that had been well flagged and everybody in government was watching because they knew she was going on uh, to talk about this. And if she goes on and repeatedly fails to express confidence in the chair of a state board and criticises that state, uh, the chair of that state board and says that she has been misled by them, it's difficult to understand how she wouldn't regard that as an effective ultimatum. I mean, if Catherine Martin thinks she can do that and nobody resigns, then she doesn't understand part of what being a minister is about. Okay, so we take take that on board then, Harry. Then I suppose the next question that follows is that given the horrible mess which RTE, which is a very large part of the minister's brief, has been in for uh, for, for many months now, was this the best way to sort things out by sacking the most prominent person connected with the organisation on live television? And really, as I think Director General Kevin Backhurst said today, kind of throwing it into further chaos. You have essentially answered your own question. It's a little bit rhetorical. <laughs> yes. but, but, well, I suppose I just want to get to what, how, why would she want to do that? That is a question that Catherine Martin will have to uh, ask, but it reminded me a little bit while uh, following it last night of the famous Vladimir Nabokov novel Invitation to a Beheading. Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, Shuni Rahali was the person invited to a beheading and she realised very quickly the beheading was going to be her own. And as you said, things moved so quickly because 
the newspapers, that, that the, the old-fashioned print newspapers that came out this morning were all saying, Shuni Rahali is in a bit of bother here, you know. Yeah. But by which time she would already, she'd already gone, she released a statement at 1am. Went up on irishtimes.com at 1am as it, well, I it gather. It did indeed. <laughs> and I, I read it last night because I happened to be working late on a, on a feature. And it... Uh, uh, she, We're a she, 24-7 operation. Yeah, she, 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 of that. course we are. She'd effectively, uh, she uh, was effectively gone. The minister did get clearance from the three leaders which will give her some degree of cover. But I wonder, did she know the consequences of what she was saying? First of all, in saying that she had been misled and secondly, refusing to express confidence in the chair on three occasions. And to me, the consequences of that were quite obvious. Shuni Rahali had nowhere else to go except to uh, resign. And uh, so, so you mean there is a possibility then that she, she fired Shuni Rahali effectively by accident? Well, I'm not saying it's by accident, but did, did she know that, that, that the consequences of her interview last night would result in what happened this morning? Because the government did seem to be put slightly on the back foot this morning. But the, the, the sum effect of it is uh, that uh, this crisis, which was already serious, has become a, a maelstrom uh, now. And any further revelations will put the, uh, the the careers of several other very senior people in jeopardy. We see Kevin Backhurst, who... Um, uh, might be in a bit of difficulty in relation to this when the details come out. And also Catherine Martin might find herself under pressure. There are some details that need to be teased out. And once those details are known, uh, they might have implications uh, for several people. For example, in a resignation statement, Shuni Rahali did say that she, she neglected to mention that the board uh, did sign off on it. But she also said that she told the then Secretary General of the Department in October of the process surrounding the exit in package a telephone call. for Richard Collins. Yeah, in a telephone call. So if she told the details of that to a senior official in the department, the question is, the department were aware of it. And what was the, was, what was the second question is, what was the department aware of? What are the details of that? And if it had the requisite level of awareness, why did it not tell the minister? Why did the minister only find out about it, you know, uh, uh, yesterday? Which the, only this ran, is the question her. now. So this is the question now, because Shuni Rally is saying, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned this to the board. I forgot about it, but I told you in October. So this is the question now. Did she tell them in October? If she did tell them, we presume she's telling the truth. Then why did the Secretary General not tell Catherine Martin about that? Or did she tell her and Catherine Martin forgot about it? So what Catherine Catherine Martin has done by forcing the resignation of Shuni Rally, I think, is has refocused this entire crisis, which up until now has had its glare squarely on RTE. That has now been refocused on the government, on Catherine Martin. So for months, you know, and we've all been talking to ministers about this and, you know, they all have a view on it, but they all say, you know, it's a big crisis. It's not the government's fault, you know, so we're not that worried about it. But now the government is at the centre of it. I mean, clearly government is involved before, but now the government is right, and Catherine Martin specifically is right in the spotlight. And that makes it a political problem for the government in a way that it wasn't before. And there's another point as well, which I think is worth making, and that is that there's rumours all around RTE at the moment that the rest of the board is going to resign. Now, I I take what you said at the top of the podcast that events may have moved on by the time people get to listen to this. But if the board walks, or a chunk of the board walks, then Catherine Martin 
will come under the most intense political pressure, I think. This is some of the hallmarks of um, what our colleague Fintan O'Toole once coined the phrase cockspiracy to uh, describe a certain kind of Irish political scandal, you know, that always seems to end up with a phone call made at some point in the past to some civil servant who may well have departed the scene at that point and did they talk to the minister and there's no paper trail. Now, I don't think myself personally that there's any... um, malintentions underlying all of this. So I think there's more cock conspiracy, if, 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 if you know what I mean. But I do wonder about, you look at the line of events here, so much of this RTE scandal, Harry, has been about the failure of the executive to inform the RTE board about significant facts which it should have known. And that was a failure of corporate governance. And now here we are and we have the failure of a government department and the, and a minister to make themselves available on exactly, to make themselves knowledgeable on exactly the same subject, whether or not the RTE board knew but, about but, something. So it's in a way, it's a kind of, the RTE disease is, has infected the it, government It has, but the, you have to make a distinction, Hugh, I think, between... The uh, crisis that erupted last year was kind of historical. It was looking back at at past practices within RTE. So we had a new brush that came in to sweep everything clean last July when Kevin Backers came in. There was a new chair in situ. Uh, There was a promise that things would be done properly. The uh, events that we're talking about today are events which have happened since that time. And I think there were a couple of ill-advised decisions by RTE management that probably didn't have... They didn't have the political antennae up to kind of sense. What do you think they were? Well, essentially, the the confidentiality clauses that associated the exit packages. Number one, very large exit packages for people that they needed to to be gone. And it's difficult. I mean, Kevin Backer said last last week, this isn't America. You can't fire people willy-nilly. So when senior management, especially, he tried to say all employees, but really, when senior management are going, you have to negotiate deals with them. But the confidentiality clauses or the NDAs that were built into them were problematic especially in the context of what happened before. And there, there should have been some degree of foreseeability in relation to that, that they should have seen that this might come back and uh, bite them. And it hasn't been a good week for Kevin Backer's Pat wrote a good analysis piece earlier on, kind of setting out all, all of these things and all of uh, these issues. And the prop, you said uh, the, the cockspiracy, which is a very good way that Fintan has described it, because it's, it's, the crisis has happened and then it keeps on kind of, it's like a feeding, the feeding frenzy continues. And it's, as Albert Reynolds said many years ago, it's the little things that, that trip you up. But those little things are really the straw that broke the camel's back. And somebody likens those crises to me one, one time as somebody getting up in the morning. When you're in the middle of a crisis, you get up in the morning with a skipping rope and you have to skip all day, 24 hours. And if you make one misstep with the skip, you're, you're gone. So it, it think things are on the edge and are, people are wavering on the edge. And when you look at what's happened over the last 24 hours, it, in its own light, it's relatively minor. But it's not minor when you look at it in the context of everything else that has happened before. And there is an onus and a responsibility on RTE, given all that has happened, you know, that it has to do everything right. And I know it's an onerous responsibility, but it has to do because that's the only thing it can do in order to restore public confidence in the broadcast. should note as well, Shunni Rahalik is a it, it's a part-time position being uh, chair of the of the RTE board. I think the salary is something around €30,000 a year. She's a kind of a solid, respected professional in the audiovisual industry. I would have thought she performed pretty well in difficult circumstances over the, over the last few months. Now they have to go out and find a, find a replacement. 
Yeah. Who want that job? Who? Well, there's always. <laughs> it's the first rule of life. There's always some Egypt will do it. But, oh, what, what, what qualified person would want that job? <laughs> um, I think this is why the events of this week have been so damaging uh, for RTE. Um, is that it's the people who came in subsequent to the crisis. Okay, Shun Nirali took uh, took up the position before the crisis broke, but any of the events that caused it took place before she arrived. So she was essentially trying to clean up the mess created by uh, by by other people. My sense is that she was pretty highly regarded uh, in uh, across across government. Um, and now she's gone. Uh, the same thing with uh, Kevin Backhurst, to an extent, who came in last summer, seen by most people in uh, in and around government as best thing that RTE had going for it. Again, any of the events that led to the crisis last year took place before his uh, arrival, and he was very much seen as the guy who was going to kind of clean up RTE and put it on a stable footing for the future. But as Harry points out, he signed off those confidentiality clauses in the packages last summer. That was his mistake. And so he's kind of tainted and the confidence of a lot of people in government in him has been a bit rocked by that, by the lack of political foresight to know that there was going to be political pressure for transparency about redundancy packages are bar yeah, and, and there wasn't any packages. awareness real uh, public awareness of those payments now he tried to say in an interview earlier this week that he'd said it in a doorstep yeah. outside the, but when you actually parsed what he said it was pretty vague now. it was very yeah. vague and that's been very very generous uh, to him and that was a mistake as well because there's this there's, there's a whole secret there's this culture of secrecy kind of narrative uh, which had accompanied RTE you know continued well doesn't it come back to this point where again and again we hear this thing about culture we discussed it in this podcast previously what is the culture of RTE and it isn't just located in one or two individuals who happen to be in, in, in charge of it two or three years ago it obviously runs a bit deeper and also maybe more broadly Irish corporate culture you know we're not too unfamiliar with the subject of senior media executives getting substantial lumps of money as they go out the door past, you know, a few feet oh, from here. It, Similar things have been history, known to happen. history of it in the and Irish Times Indeed there well, is, you know, indeed there is. And it caused, yeah. caused some unhappiness, it should be said, uh, when it has happened from uh, from time to time. So presumably Kevin Backhurst just felt he was doing what was par for the course in Irish, Irish corporate circles. Uh, enti- yes, yes, but... Um, but it is still an extraordinary lack of foresight not to know that there was going to be a demand for these packages uh, to be, uh, the details of them to be published. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that was a, it was a significant mistake by Backhurst. However you turn it around, whatever context you put on it, he was still, he must have known that when he was agreeing these things, he was going to be before a doll committee at some stage saying, I can't tell you that there's a confidentiality package. If he didn't know that, then... But he know, is, in the words of your, your, your article earlier this week, the indispensable man. I think he remains the indispensable man, even more so now, um, in the wake of, of Shuni Rahlig's uh, departure. Though, as somebody else once said, the cemeteries are full of indispensable men. 
Yeah. Um, just, I mean, one last thought on this. There was, there was a sense that there was a process in place, Harry, that RT was going to get its Grant Thornton report and the other report out the door. They'd have to go back before uh, our Octus committee or two, which happened last week, which really set off this this act of this long-running play. Um, and then there were a couple of reports to go to Catherine Martin's department, and then it would be time for the government finally perhaps to consider some new relationship and funding structure with RTE. Has that all been thrown up in the air, I wonder? It, it has. Um, you know, there was a sense that the theatre that began last summer ha- had departed from the West End and was kind of moving down towards the end of the pier uh, now in terms of uh, human entertainment. Even though there was a kind of a sting in the tail over the past couple of weeks, uh, the story about two uh, Oireachtas Committee having a turf war, you know, over who should have control of the RTE. The RTE narrative has been very good for politicians because it has had a kind of a diverting effect in terms of some of the other issues and crises. Uh, Which are of a far greater scale in many cases. Of course they yeah. are, yeah. And and the, the Rock has dealt with some of them this week. Uh, which put, I mean, the RT scandal, bad and all as it is. And there, it is important because, you know, we need to have public confidence in our national broadcaster and public service broadcasting is very, really important. And it's, it's, we need to have a, an independent broadcaster that is fit for purpose. And all of that is very important. But there are other things that were discussed in the Oireachtas this week uh, that, that really put it in the halfpenny place. Uh, the, the final thing is, I mean, the, 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 there is a difficulty for Kevin Backhurst and for RTE in publishing even aggregate uh, figures. Cantillon did a very good column this week said, saying that even if they do that, by a process of elimination, you can very easily discern what each of the individuals has, has got because only two individuals uh, benefited from the package in 2023, Rory Coveney and Richard Collins. And we kind of have a fair idea of what Rory Coveney got. So he got a year's salary. That, of course, yes. is... Mm. Backhurst's fault, though. I mean, Rory. I mean, all the talk about Richard Collins's uh, confidentiality clause. Presumably, Rory Coveney had one as well, but his figure is being widely reported, and it's been widely reported because Kevin Backhurst said that you know that the the position hadn't been replaced, and Orty would recoup the cost of it by this summer, which is another way of saying we gave him a year's salary. Salary, yes. Does any of this matter at all in the broader political scheme of things, apart from? For people who so, have a specific interest in the question of public service broadcasting, which is not insignificant, but... Yeah, I mean, I so I would have said not massively, but I think things have escalated quite a bit now. So if the board, if the board walks, then I think there's huge pressure on Catherine Martin, and then it becomes a much bigger problem for the government. My sense is that Catherine Martin would dig in and that is likely then to just prolong the crisis. And but also that prolong inter-party tensions within the coalition? Yeah, I mean, I can't see uh, Taoiseach and Tanisha going to Eamon Ryan and saying she has to go. Um, but it would certainly cause tensions because you'll have no end of backbenchers and maybe minister, maybe even ministers off the record lining up to tell us, you know, that she could, uh, that she should go. And it prolongs the crisis and it prolongs this phase of the crisis, which has, as I said earlier, its lens focused on government and not just on RTE. So I think it is today becoming a more serious political problem than it has been before now. Right. We, we will move on to a subject, Harry, you mentioned there were other important subjects before, uh, before the Oireachtas this week, and I think this is a, this is a very serious one. There, I mean, there are, there, the Irish Health Service is a large, ungainly beast, and there are some bits of it that, that actually work 
perfectly fine and work quite well uh, and some health outcomes are quite good and some out- and in some areas where it really clearly doesn't and then among those areas there is some where the the pain and suffering that arises as a as a result of that are just so glaringly horrifyingly obvious that you know every time it comes to public attention you go how how can this yeah. happen and there was one of those this week yeah absolutely Hugh. Uh, scoliosis and spina bifida so uh, Sinn Féin brought a private member's motion this week in relation to paediatric orthopaedics, but mainly spina bifida and scoliosis. Now, there's a higher incidence of spina bifida in Ireland uh, because of population genetics than in other comparable countries. Uh, and scoliosis, which is such a debilitating uh, condition, but one that can be corrected if one gets an early intervention. Now, the first thing that must be said, that any intervention in terms of any of those spinal uh, um, issues, they're very complicated. You're talking about very serious surgery. Multiple surgeries as well. Multiple surgeries, uh, many, many months of recuperation. And also, you need to have highly specialist uh, surgeons, you know, using very innovative techniques uh, to correct the the difficulties uh, with posture and with, with curved spines and with incomplete spines, etc. So it is difficult. So you do need to have very specialist people. But, you know, other jurisdictions have been able to deal with this issue adequately. In Ireland, it has been just disgraceful. So it was quite timely for Sinn Féin uh, to bring forward this motion this year. And it did it in a, in a non-declamatory way. And I, 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 you have to give uh, Sinn Féin kudos for the way it approached this issue this week. But the, the, the difficulty is that uh, despite all the promises by government over the past decade, very little progress has been made. Uh, Simon Harris, when he was Minister for Health in 2017, promised that all waiting lists for sc- uh, scoliosis procedures uh, would be reduced uh, down to zero. N- not only has that not happened, but the waiting lists that were there in, in 2017 are longer now than they were And this is for children then. whose condition deteriorates further and further and yeah. further the longer they're waiting. The, if the, the earlier the intervention, the better the outcome. So if you have a child who's left for two or three years, the, the condition will have progressed to such an extent that the corrective surgery will be far more complicated, uh, that many procedures might need to take, and then the outcomes will be, will be, will be suboptimal. So earliest intervention is best. And everybody is aware of that. And the government is aware of that. Uh, and obviously, parents uh, are aware of that. One of the uh, children outside the uh, Arachthus this week was a 10-year-old child from Donegal who's been waiting uh, for a procedure since she was five. So, I mean, you're talking about critical periods during the formation of, of human beings when this corrective surgery needs to take place. So the government really essentially put its hands up, um, both Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, and the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, during the course of the debate and during leaders' questions on, um, on Wednesday. And uh, the Taoiseach admitted that he didn't have an, ex- an adequate explanation as to why this problem has not been solved. And Stephen Donnelly also referred to the fact that €19 million Euro in additional funding had been given to uh, CHI, uh, uh, the Children's Health Service in, in Ireland, in 2019 to bring the time down to invest in more specialist uh, staff uh, to ensure uh, that the turnover of operations uh, was higher. And, and Sinn Féin zeroed in on that 19 million and did, asked questions about, well, where is it? Well, and and he, wasn't a, he wasn't able to explain that. He said he mm. has asked the HSE, HSE for explanations and he hasn't been given adequate explanations. And he's asked the 
uh, internal auditors uh, within the HSE uh, to uh, to examine this to see if the money that was allotted was actually used for that particular uh, purpose. So there is. Would a it not be an absolute scandal if it had not been? Absolutely. So uh, once the, the report or whatever outcome to that process is is available, people will know as to whether that money was allotted, allotted to its proper mm. use or not. If it hasn't been, it's a complete and utter scandal. And and I mean, the the the, uh, the there were lots of adjectives and lot lots of you know disgraces, appalling mm. uh, adjectives thrown around this week. And for once, there weren't hyperbole. You're talking about conditions that people can visibly see, you know, deteriorate unless there is intervention and it's not happening and it's absolutely a black bark uh, um, for the HSE and for our health services in general and for the government which has overall and overarching responsibility for it. I'm going to ask the cynical question we always ask on this podcast, Pat, does this have any effect on the politics, the political prospects of the party? Well, it doesn't help them, does it? Um, but I think that, you know, Harry's description of it there, it, it, it zeroes in on one important kind of or one characteristic way in which this government gets itself in trouble and it's that it mistakes the spending of money for the achievement of results it thinks that once it has allocated money it has done its job but it actually hasn't and very often you find that that money doesn't achieve the results that it is intended to and this is a classic example uh, of that. And that's why you find ministers on the radio saying, you know, is there anything weaker that a, a minister can say that money isn't the problem here? You mm. know, because the obvious corollary of that is that, of course, it's management and effective grip, which is a sort of, sounds like an intangible quality of a government, but I think people recognise a government that has grip and doesn't have grip. And in this instance, it's very clear that the government doesn't have grip. Right. We'll take a break here. We'll be right back after this. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored exclusively for your business needs. Spanning offices, warehouses, industries, workshops, schools and public spaces. Specialising in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. Our offerings include versatile storage solutions and comprehensive office project design and implementation. With over 45 years of experience, we stand as your trusted partner in smart B2B solutions. To explore all we have to offer, visit ajproducts.ie and elevate your business with AJ Products. And you're welcome back, Pat and Harry, you're still here. Now, Michael O'Regan was for many years the parliamentary correspondent of this newspaper. You've probably seen many of the tributes paid to him since the announcement last Saturday of his sudden, sad and unexpected death. You might have got a sense of the warm regard and the affection in which he was clearly held across the worlds of both politics and media, including a minute silence in Dáil Éireann and, and including tributes from many politicians, including the president. Um, for myself, I'd just say that he was always a pleasure to meet in the newsroom. He was a big, gregarious, funny Kerry man who uh, wasn't afraid to share his opinions, but he always did it in this particular affable, humorous kind of a way. And that came across, I think, on this podcast where he was a regular guest up until his retirement in 2019. Here's Michael talking to Pat back in September 2016 about Enda Kenny's leadership of Fine Gael. And the great horror of Fine Gael is to be pitched into the next election with Mr Kenny as leader. So that 
that begins, I think, at that stage to have implications for Mr. Kenny. Yeah, that's why uh, uh, this is the difficulty for Mr. Kenny. If he plans to go on until 2008, which I think he does, but I mean, I don't know that, but I think he does. That's the difficulty for him because the worst nightmare for a Fine Gael TD is uh, the government collapses and Mr. Kinney is still leader. Uh, so, but what happens in the meantime, Pat? You see, how do you ta- if you want to take him out, who moves first? Uh, how do you none, take none of the contenders? It no, seems none of the to contenders. Me. A lot of people in Fine Gael have jobs. You know, the ministers, junior ministers. More than half the parliamentary well, party are ministers. Yes, exactly. Do they want to jeopardise it? And I think he's calculating uh, uh, that. Um, well, how are they going to take me out if I do stay mm. on? And, by the way, he's also living in the same house as one of the most skillful press officers that Fianna Fáil ever had, Fanula Kelly, who was press officer, um, uh, married to Enda Kenny, uh, uh, who was press officer during the Haughey Heaves in Fianna Fáil and who saw how Haughey survived against the odds. Mm. Uh, so, from that point of view, he's, he's getting some very, very good advice. I, I think he plans to stay on my own thinking is that he plans to stay on until the summer of 2018. Harry, that was Michael uh, getting his predictions wrong, actually. You know, yeah. it's a hazard, <laughs> hazard of the profession, isn't it? Enda Kenny was gone within the year. Yeah, that happens quite a lot, uh, especially in this quarter. It was very Michael. Um, well, M- Michael was really fantastic at the personal side of politics, the personal connections. He knew everybody. And he, as you said, Hugh, he had outspoken views. But uh, he always played, unlike Kerry footballers, he always played uh, the ball rather than the man. Um, I, I'm allowed to take a dig at him because he was always taking a dig at Galway. That was a Galway, a Galway, a Galway dig football. if ever I heard one. Yeah. So his, his main loyalty, of course, was to Kerry. And then after, after that, he, was, he gave everybody uh, their due regard according to their own lives. But there in that clip, you could see his reference to Enda Kenny and that wonderful reference to Enda Kenny's other half, Fanulo uh, Kelly, who he remembered was a, a press officer for Fianna Fáil and a very good one back in the in, in the and 90s. And also from Kerry, of course. And also, <laughs> absolutely. And so that was very much Michael. Michael would make those connections. And, and if somebody was analysing Enda Kenny, I, I would have analysed him in a completely different way. So Michael was able to bring his own kind of huge repertoire of, of words and this lovely Kerry Brogue, this mellifluous Kerry Brogue, also that huge local knowledge and also this huge network of people he knew. Michael knew everybody. And during ele- around election time, he was always really fantastic in knowing who the candidates were, who their helpers were, and knowing about the details of very small parcels of lands, roods of lands in Roscommon or Kerry or West Cork that could make a difference in terms of uh, politics. And he was just a wonderful uh, person uh, who was uh, upbeat most of the time, uh, who had a very good take on politics and really enriched the, the fabric of the coverage that we had in the Irish Times and in the Irish media and, in and general. And in some ways, Patty, he bridged, you know, two, at least two generations of journalism. He was an old school print journalist. I noticed from his obituary, I wasn't aware of this. He was the first graduating class from the first journalism school in, in, in Ireland, Rat Mines, graduated in 1971, covered a lot of the big stories in the 70s and the 80s, particularly the Kerry Babies was, mm-hmm. a, was, a, was a big story for him. 
But he was also, he was a really good broadcaster. He had a fantastic voice and, you know, he ended up on this, as a, as a regular on this podcast, you know, a, 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 a long career that in a way reflects the changes in journalism And he used well. to be on, used to be on Vincent Brown's Nike mm. programme quite a lot on radio and then when that transferred to television, he was on that a lot. In and he fact, was mad for Twitter. He was mad, he, he yeah. was on, I, I mean, and only was, two weeks was, ago or so I saw him on uh, on Virgin. He was a legend the, on Radio Kerry as well. Yeah, he had a weekly all. column. I mean, Kerry County Council spent most of its meeting last week paying tribute to Michael. I mean, that's how much esteem he was held in in his native county. Really, uh, he was, I was actually on Radio Kerry talking to them uh, about him on Monday morning and, uh, you know, everybody was, you know, people were sending in messages, people were phoning, uh, phoning in and of course the Healy Rays gave uh, a moving tribute to him uh, in the doll. the highlight of which is they recalled that at their own father's funeral, Michael had come to the funeral and stayed for all three days and three nights uh, in, <laughs> in Kilgarvan. Um, but he, he was, he was all over the Twitter, as you say, uh, Hugh, he had a nice persona on it, refused to be bogged down by the nastiness of it. And one of the things I'll always remember about Michael is just that he was, how much he loved journalism. Mm. He loved political journalism. He loved being in the doll. He liked politicians. He got a great kick out of the whole pantom pantomime of politics uh, that revolves uh, that, that, that revolves around Leinster House and I think that was one of the reasons why he was he was good at it because of course you know you're more likely to be good at something that you really uh, enjoy and he spanned a couple of generations as journalists of uh, journalists as you say Hugh and he was also much beloved of a younger generation uh, of journalists, even younger than myself and uh, and Harry, who that all young. That young. Yeah, even younger, <laughs> if you can believe that, yeah. um, <laughs> in, in Leinster House, who all looked up to him and who and and, and who he was very good to, uh, in terms of you know just sitting in the 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 refectory in in, in Leinster House, having cups of tea, cups of coffee with people, giving them advice, giving them the benefit of his. Uh, his enormous knowledge. Uh, you know, yeah. there was there was hardly since hardly anybody in Leinster House had a bad word to say about Michael. Exactly, he was he was. I mean, politicians are generally people. People they they like people. They're kind of extrovert. They like the company of people. And Michael was made. Michael's constitutional. Michael's constitution was as, ch- as the same. He was a person who was an extrovert. He loved people. He loved chatting. He loved gossip. And he got on very, very well with politicians. And he, he, he was quite outspoken, for example, in his views on Sinn Féin. He wouldn't have been the greatest fan of Sinn Féin, especially in his retirement. But quite a number of Sinn Féin TDs and senators came up to me during the course of the week to say how much they had liked Michael on a personal yeah, level. That, really and Ma- sums, that sums him up, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, Mike, Michael had, had mm. contacted them, uh, you know, if, they'd see, if he'd seen them on television or on, heard them on radio or making some contribution... He'd sometimes contact them by text or by Twitter to say, I thought that was very good or I thought you could have made this point or that point. So he, there was something about Michael uh, that that was innately suited to the world of politics. And I think his composition or the way that he was uh, constructed as a human being uh, was similar to that of many of the politicians mm. uh, we know. And I think they appreciated that and they got on so well with him, as, as did all of us. Mm. You know, mm. he was an eminently likeable man and we'll miss him terribly. We really will. Gone too soon, he will be greatly missed. Um, this time every week we have a look at articles that took our fancy on irishtimes.com and uh, Pat, you've, you've been looking at what young people are drinking. <laughs> so this is a piece um, uh, by Finn McMurredmond, uh, columnist based in London in yesterday's 
paper and um, she's referring to various surveys that show that uh, young, young, younger people, um, Gen Z and millennials combined, don't ask me to tell you what they are, but... Um, millennials are quite younger, old these days, aren't they? Well, young, younger, younger than some of the people out here. And uh, they're, they're drinking less, uh, apparently, but they're drinking better quality wine. She says, all of a sudden it seems the children are drinking like adults and the adults are drinking like teenagers. And um, Is this true in your experience? Well, in my experience, you, <laughs> just because you drink better quality wine doesn't necessarily mean, mean you drink less. You drink Less of it. But actually, I, I think that's a, very, that's a very honest uh, yeah. expression I, of your experience. I thought you were going to teleport you there, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> I have an idea for, uh, uh, for a podcast, actually, that we, 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 might, we might come back to. And we should probably bring uh, producer Declan into this conversation. Because I, 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 he'll I have to bring I the budget can, to it. <laughs> I think I can describe the landscape of Irish politics in terms of, uh, in terms of wine. So Fine Gaelers are like, Bordeaux, you know, they're slightly old-fashioned, stolid, reliable, not that exciting. Fina Fallers are like wines from the Southern Rhone. And on and on. Uh, and on Is it, it all only French it, wines? It, it goes. Um, I, I, no, 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 no. Some party be book fast. Sinn Féin, no, Sinn Féin are... Um, hold on, let me consult my Chardonnay, notes. Chardonnay, no. Sinn Féin are like uh, an Italian super Tuscan, you know. So uh, I've put quite a bit of thought into this. Now, clearly, there will have to be, as it was at Christmas, more... Drink, drinking on air, so... Well, obviously, if Declan's prepared to provide the wines, I'm prepared to put up with it. I'm not sure do, our listeners will. What you should do is, is you should get Declan to maybe to buy 30 bottles of wine going from really good quality to really low quality, then bring in a lot of people, both young and old, and then mm. get somebody to <laughs> test out the theory. Okay. <laughs> if they're right. still uh, standing right. you better, able to do that. You better tell security yeah. about that one. Okay, uh, De- right. De- Declan looks quite enthusiastic. He does, he does. He does look more enthusiastic than usual. Mercy. <laughs> Harry, um, oh, you were looking at a piece by Miriam Lord. It was a terrific piece about spats between South County Dublin TDs. Oh, that was hilarious. Now, she, she, did, she wrote a beautiful tribute to Michael Regan, by the way. She did, and she indeed. said the tributes to Michael, the lovely line, she said, if Michael had heard them, he would have died and gone to heaven. I thought that was really nice. Mm. But this was so funny. So there was a row uh, between uh, two uh, Dunlira TDs, Richard Boyd Barrett and Jennifer Carl O'Neill, uh, kind of refereed by Leo Varadkar. So it was a very posh row. I was saying in the Digest on Thursday morning that read a little bit like a Roddy Doyle play, except that it was set in Dunlira <laughs> rather than Barrytown. But it was hilarious. So it was a non-row. Uh, Taoiseach took umbrage on uh, Jennifer's behalf uh, when she started She started heckling Richard Boyd Barrett uh, when he was just kind of coming up. I think it's telling the two key protagonists both of double-barreled names, isn't yes, it? Yes, um, to, to boiling point. And he told her uh, essentially to butt out of the conversation. And then the Taoiseach took great umbrage on her behalf. And it just descended into an awful row. And most of the column is dialogue. But the dialogue itself is just priceless. Mm-hmm. Just the interchange between them. Uh, it, was, it was just priceless. And it was Miriam really at her best. And I, I really loved it. And I enjoyed it so much when I read it. Right. Um, I, my piece is, this is a first, I think, for me, or perhaps in this, in this section. It is a, uh, it's a letter. Um, and it is from uh, an academic in Queen's University. So it's a very erudite letter. He's the emeritus professor in Queen's University. His name is uh, Ian Montgomery. And he was responding to another letter, because this is the way things go on the letters page, when in discussions about the Metro link to the airport, somebody had written in one of those short, pithy letters, you'll be aware of those, asking whether it, uh, a snail would have made it from Dublin Airport in the time it has taken to plan the Metro link. And um, this, this uh, professor from 
in Belfast, fortunately, is a professor of natural science. And, and he's a he, specialist in he snails. He answers the question. He says if a snail had started crawling from the airport into the city centre 20 years ago when Metrolink was first proposed, would it have reached it by now? He says it's a tricky question. Difficult to answer with any degree of authority. And then he goes on to answer it. He estimates a garden snail speed can vary, but the fastest can do about eight metres an hour. But he's estimating at about three metres an hour. However, and I quote here, it depends on certain factors, you know, the, the height of the terrain, low and high temperatures, whether they are, they are following another snail uh, or whether they stop to have frequent rests or indeed sex. Um, so having taken all those factors into account... And he account of the traffic? Having, having, well, having, <laughs> having taken all those factors into account, he, uh, he also says that um, on the basis of the distance between Dublin Airport and the Natural History Museum in Dublin 2, which is obviously where he's going from Dublin Airport, uh, being 13.4 kilometres, it would take four to five years. Um, potentially the humble garden snail could make that round trip at least twice in about 20 years. Unfortunately then, he does point out that um, their lifespan is quite limited, so any snail attempting the airport route is likely to end up either lost or dead. And on that note, we shall leave it. Thank you very much. caliber of readers that we have in the Irish Times. <laughs> I tell you. Yeah, this is why people should subscribe. I always keep forgetting to tell people to do that. Don't forget to subscribe to irishtimes.com for more quality, won't buy it, more quality letters. If, if you have heard the first cuckoo of the year, please let us know. <laughs> Thank you. I've seen no sign it's of it yet on, dinner, on, uh, on, on the letters uh, page. Okay. Witcher uh, Fine Gael wine. Um, <laughs> we'll leave it there. Thanks very much to Pat Adari, to Declan, our producer, and JJ, our engineer. We'll be back very soon indeed. Have a great weekend.